Welcome to the Knowing Jesus Podcast. I'm your host, Brian Bachman, a licensed professional counselor. On the show, we explore who the real Jesus is, with his love, with his power, and with his endless pursuit of humanity, with the hope of changing our lives. Good morning. On today's episode, we're reading John chapter 12, verses 1 through 19. Before we do that, I just want to notice we skipped John 11 temporarily. I did not plan well. (laughs) So uh, we've got a really great episode coming up with Tim Holly, lead pastor of The Journey West County, where we do kind of an interview style, where we unpack John 11 together. And I have not finished, we've, we've recorded it, but I haven't finished editing it yet. And so we're skipping ahead, and then we'll swing back. So With that said, let's dive in to the word. Six days before the Passover, Jesus came to Bethany, where Lazarus lived, whom Jesus had raised from the dead. Here, a dinner was given in Jesus' honor. Martha served, while Lazarus was among those reclining at the table with them. Then Mary took about a pint of pure nard, an expensive perfume. She poured it on Jesus' feet and wiped his feet with her hair and the house was filled with the fragrance of the perfume. But one of his disciples, Judas Iscariot, who was later to betray him, objected. Why wasn't this perfume sold and the money given to the poor? It was worth a year's wages. He did not say this because he cared about the poor, but because he was a thief. As keeper of the money bag, he used to help himself to what was put into it. Leave her alone, Jesus replied. It was intended that she would save this perfume for the day of my burial. You will always have the poor among you, but you will not always have me. Meanwhile, a large crowd of Jews found out that Jesus was there and came, not only because of him, but also to see Lazarus, whom he had raised from the dead. So the chief priests made plans to kill Lazarus as well. For on account of him, many of the Jews were going over to Jesus and believing in him. The next day, the great crowd that had come for the festival heard that Jesus was on his way to Jerusalem. They took palm branches and went out to meet him, shouting, Hosanna! Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Blessed is the King of Israel. Jesus found a young donkey and sat on it. As it is written, Do not be afraid, daughter Zion. See, your king is coming, seated on a donkey's colt. At first, his disciples did not understand all of this. Only after Jesus was glorified did they realize that these things had been written about him and that these things had been done to him. Now the crowd that was with him when he called Lazarus from the tomb and raised him from the dead continued to spread the word. Many people, because they had heard that he performed this sign, went out to meet him. So the Pharisees said to one another, See, this is getting us nowhere. Look how the whole world has gone after him. Wow, just 20 verses in, and there is a lot happening in the text. We see Mary, who takes a pint of expensive perfume and pours it on Jesus' feet and his hair, to honor him and as a prophetic gesture for his burial. We see Judas Iscariot who claims to object on case of the poor, but really is a thief who steals money 
from the group's purse. We see that many people are coming to witness not only Jesus, but Lazarus, because Jesus raised Lazarus from the dead. We see the chief priests who want to kill Lazarus to cover up this miracle and claim that Jesus didn't actually raise him from the dead. We see a crowd later honoring Jesus with palm branches and recognizing him as the king, although it's not the king that they actually want. Let's start with this interaction between Mary, Jesus, and Judas. As you often hear me say, there probably isn't as much difference in the human heart between antiquity and today. What do I mean by that? I mean, someone spending a year's worth of wages on perfume to honor someone probably wasn't any easier back then than it it would be today. Mary takes a great gesture to honor Jesus, to care for him, to glorify him, and to sacrifice something for him. We see Judas who pretends to care about the poor and who's really a thief. I often forget that not only did he betray Jesus, but this passage tells us that he was stealing from the little money that the disciples and Jesus had. And Jesus, I'm sure, knew this. And he isn't harsh with Judas. He's not passive-aggressive can't even imagine what it would be like to walk with someone who's claiming to support you and serve you, knowing, knowing that they're stealing from you, knowing that they're going to betray you, and still, at least in the text, seemingly show nothing but kindness and patience. Jesus makes a unique statement and rebuttal to Judas's fake objection. Jesus says that we will always have poor among us. I know that we human beings can take that in two wildly different directions. We could say, hey, why does it even matter to take care of the poor? They're always going to be with us. We can't fix it. And I know others of us kind of ignore this passage and think that we can create utopias where everyone will have everything that they need. And then we live in an ever more complicated world where poverty looks very different from culture to culture, city to city, country to country. I have to confess that my heart can go wildly different directions as well. I'm often more cynical these days than I used to be about giving. And then I've read a number of books and had conversations and just, honestly, it's, it's messy for me. There's a lot of speculation that it isn't helpful at all to give people money on the street. Um, And I could argue that the Bible would probably agree with that too, that although it's good to give and take take care of those in need, accountability is also important and good. I mean, the Bible itself says, if you are unwilling to work, you shouldn't eat. That sounds so harsh, and yet it is not good for human beings to not work, to not contribute, to be selfish, and it will destroy us if all we do is take and we never give. Obviously, then we have political structures that then can take that too far and not have any compassion or mercy, and that's where we need to have the balance. And that's why Republican, Democrat, neither is biblical. 
both have good values, both have good ideas, but they're both going to fall miserably short because neither is founded or rooted in the gospel. They are human institutions. And it sucks. Because wouldn't that be great? Wouldn't that be nice if we could just fix it? If we just had a simple worldview that could make things better? That would be fantastic. But it also falls very short of the reality and the complexity of the world that God has given us. All this to say, I used to be more willing to give to people on the street, but now I've found organizations that I can trust, trust enough, right, um, to take care of those. I love Living Water. I didn't know about the organization Living Water before I met Ashley. Um, And for some reason, it took me a while to get excited about it, maybe because water seemed so simple. It didn't seem very um, great or heroic. And yet, the more we talked about it and I reflected, I had... I just have no comprehension for not being able to get clean water and then how much that would affect your day-to-day operations if you could get sick regularly, your children could get sick or die because something so basic, something so simple like water. And I'd love to have people on the podcast and, and wrestle with you and see other angles because currently, right now, like that's one of the most basic elements of poverty in my view. I have a really hard time seeing other poverty. And I know that that would be insensitive to some people in America. Because I, I don't know what it's like to be on the bottom, lower social classes. But as far as I know, even if we're on a lower social class in this country, we still have access to so much more than people in like... 50, 60% of the world's population because around 50% of the world lives on $5.50 a day or less, which is really confusing and humbling. And I have to reflect. Sometimes I'm upset. God, why did you put me in this day and age? Why does humanity have the ability to see like the whole world all at once. I don't think we were ever designed or made to have that capability. And yet God has allowed it. And it's, it's exhausting. It's overwhelming. But then ironically, there can be a lot of good that comes from that. I know I have a friend, uh, David Paterka, who started an organization called Win the Saints. It helps get women out of sex trafficking, sex slavery, and restores and gives vocation and even attempts. It's been a while since I've checked up on it, honestly, in this moment, forgetting. But the goal was then to redeem the men, too, that are doing the sexual abuse to break the patterns, which is brilliant. So even though we are exposed to tremendous pain and suffering, we also have, like never before, the ability to affect so many more people. And we have to rely on Christ. We can't save the world. In that instance, my friend, he felt Jesus calling him specifically to do that action, to start that ministry. And that's amazing and beautiful. And then even, um, no, I'm all over the place today, but on the topic of poverty, 
for some reason, my mind goes to how much I struggle with being content, always wanting, always seeking, always hungering for something else. I often pride myself that I'm not, I guess by my own standards, but I'm not a materialistic person. Most things I buy are things that will improve uh, quality of life, efficiency, um, they're, they're to repair things in the house or the car. I don't like to buy stuff. And so I often feel a little snooty, I guess. But and the reality is I get obsessed over video games and want to buy every video game that comes out. And that's not any better. I'm always seeking and hungering and searching. I mean, just last night, I was being still and reading the Bible and trying to pray. And that was a rare instance that outside of the podcast, I was just trying to be still and sit with God. And that's so sad. And you could think I'm just mindlessly rambling and you know, maybe I am. But some of the reason I do this and invite you into my inner world is as a counselor, I hear so many similar stories, but then realize that the average person doesn't get to hear how we all struggle in so many similar ways. Like this is a human thing that we struggle to be satisfied, we struggle to be content, we struggle to be thankful, we struggle to just exhale and say, wow, like my needs are met. America has a lot of positives and beautiful aspects about it, but it also has some very cancerous, destructive things. Our culture says, do not be content. Our culture says, always improve and strive and get more don't be don't settle and friends like that is antichrist and again i'm speaking to myself first and foremost that i get so sucked into the machine of materialism of finding my satisfaction in things instead of god and relationships and people So all that to say, coming back to the text, Mary does an incredible job of not focusing on what she has and what she doesn't have. She sees Jesus. Wow, man, I'm feeling it. She sees Jesus as so valuable that she doesn't care if she gives up a year's worth of wages to honor him for what, 30 minutes until the perfume uh, dissipates? But it's a gesture of love. It's a gesture of saying that, Jesus, you mean so much. I could never, ever pay you back. And, And the sweet part is he doesn't ask us to pay him back. But his kindness often elicits that kind of radical response. Mary's heart is touched by Jesus's love. And she's not thinking and focusing on the world anymore. She's focused on him. Judas, on the other hand, has not allowed his heart to be touched by the person and love of Jesus. And he is still regularly focusing on numbers and money 
accumulation. So much so that it has rotten his heart and he is stealing from the author of life and will then betray the author of life for money. Wow, I just, I never made that connection. Isn't this maybe what Jesus is talking about? The love of money. Key distinction, because we often just say money is the root of all evil, and that's not correct. It says the love of money is the root of all kinds of evil. And Judas, sounds strange to say this, is an amazing example of that. He's stealing, he's calculating, and then he will trade Jesus' life for money. So in summary, as Jesus says, you will always have the poor among you, but you will not always have me. I'm just speculating here, but in the heart of the rest of scripture, yes, it is good to take care of the poor. And often the scripture emphasizes the poor are people that uh, culture does not allow to make money for themselves. So remembering that in antiquity, women could not hold property or have jobs often. Um, And so if a woman was a widow, she was very vulnerable. Orphans and the disabled are typically the three types of people that are the poor, the true poor, because they are vulnerable and unable to care for themselves and need special watching over. So then moving on to the next bullet point, People wanted to see Lazarus. I mean, can you just put yourself in the shoes of these people back then? You're just going through your your day. You're in the field harvesting some wheat. And your friend says, hey, I just heard from another town that some guy raised another guy from the dead. Like, do you want to go check this out? And you're like, yeah, sure. And you go. And you see and hear all the people that knew Lazarus, that were friends of his, family of his. Heck, maybe you even knew someone who was at the funeral. (laughs) And you get to see this man and your mind is blown. For the first time, I think, in human history, a human being was raised from the dead. Maybe second, if if the little girl uh, that passed away, I forget if that's in this gospel or another, but ground breaking stuff. And yet, like Judas, the chief priests completely miss who Jesus is and are not only willing to kill Jesus. Good gosh, like how do these, I mean, this is, this is the deceptiveness of sin. It's easy to write off people, but sin is deceptive and subtle and changes our minds and our hearts and it warps us. These chief priests know that murder is like one of the worst sins that you could commit. And they somehow deceive and justify themselves, you know, a la sin, that it's okay to kill Jesus because he's a false prophet. How do they then justify killing a random innocent man? Because they not only want to kill Jesus, they want to kill Lazarus as well to cover up the miracle. And that should give us pause. That if we see sin, 
starting to take root in our lives and distort our thinking and justify things that we didn't use to justify. Holy crap, friend. (laughs) Call your friends, call your family, call your pastor, and just start confessing. Like you need to start sharing and inviting people in. Sin, like shame, doesn't survive as well when it's brought to light. That's one of the reasons why the Bible emphasizes darkness and light. If we do things in secret, we can deceive ourselves, and then the sin can multiply. If it's exposed to light, it's harder for it to thrive, especially met with love. Instead of just, you know, not just, like, it's implying you should have judgment and condemnation. Instead of just, you know, accountability, maybe something needs to change, but not shame. Because we are all susceptible to sin. Moving on from here to another point in this story. I feel like I'm beating a concept to death, so forgive me, but I think in our current day and age, it's important. And I hadn't realized how much of the mentioning of kings and politics was in the gospel until this round for some reason. Verse 12, the crowd comes to celebrate Jesus. They wave palm branches, shout Hosanna. Blessed is the king of Israel. This is his triumphant, triumphant entry into the city of God. Now, we're going to see in just a few chapters, these are the same people that then shout, crucify him. And sure, some of this is just speculation, but they had no intention of him being king over their lives. A king, kings tell you what to do. You listen to the king, you obey the king. If he truly is king in their sight, they would have done whatever he said. They wanted to be rescued from oppression. They wanted to overthrow the Roman government. They wanted to be a significant nation again. They wanted to be powerful. They wanted to be the Israel that God had made them in the Old Testament. And when he didn't fit what they wanted, just like Israel, they rejected God. Maybe you're familiar, maybe not. I think it's Samuel I get some of the Old Testament books mixed up, but I I believe it is. That Israel says, we want a king. We want to be like the other nations. This is, in one sense, the ultimate betrayal of Israel to God. God fostered this nation, delivered them out of slavery, did miracles. They were special. Israel got to see Yahweh in a way that no other nation did. And instead of accepting and enjoying and delighting in this treasure, they said, we don't want you. We want an earthly king. We want to be like the other nations. We want to be great. And God, wow, man, he gives them what they want. That should also give us pause that God has a will for us. His will was to be their king to be a true holy theocracy. Theocracy meaning, you know, God-led, God-ruling. But his people spoke. They used their free will. And he said, even though this isn't good for you, 
I will allow you to have the desires of your heart. The desires of your heart are not me, and I will give them to you. And you will see that when the desires of your heart are not me, they lead to destruction and pain and suffering. And there's no pleasure in God doing that. But it's one of the ways to get our attention. And friends, as much as I may irritate or lose some listeners, I have to say that no matter what political side you're on, it's not God. And God will give us what we want. We're not choosing him anymore. Crafty, evil men have told us that one side or the other is God's vote, and that is not true. There is corruption and evil on both sides. There is no hope in politics. There is no hope in human beings. We, the church, should know this above all and be countercultural and not rely on a government to somehow usher in some, I would say, very false impression of godly living. We, the church, are free to do the work of our Father and the kingdom, whether it's legal, whether it's illegal. (laughs) We get to love our enemies regardless of who is in power. We should be caring for the alien and the foreigner, the poor, our enemy, all the people that we don't want to, (laughs) regardless of who's in power. And it breaks my heart. It breaks my heart that we so easily draw lines and hate one another. You know who's winning right now? I hate to say this because it makes me sound like a spiritual nut job. Satan's winning in a fake way. He loves that we fight. He loves that quote unquote Christians or actual Christians hate each other. He loves that Christians hate non-believers. He loves that we disdain and ridicule and mock and are superior and smug. He loves all of that. He loves that you think you're going to prove someone right on social media. He loves that you think you can tear people down and somehow that's going to change their minds. He loves that we put our faith in human beings instead of God. He loves that we are willing to rally behind human beings and harm others to push our worldly agendas. Now, hopefully you understand my my, um, metaphorical Satan isn't actually winning. Jesus has already won. And yet there's a lot of darkness happening right now. And it's not them. It's us. Friends, I'll be honest with you. I've been on both sides of the political party. So this, is, this isn't easy. Don't think I'm like, ah, just trying to make this so simple over here. Grew up in a conservative home. And before Jesus, I, I was just straight up racist. And I hate to admit this, but this is the power of Christ. I used to say, get every you know illegal Mexican out of this uh, country or South American out of this country. I hated them. It was wrong. It was evil. I used to say everyone who doesn't just pull themselves up by the bootstraps is just disgusting. I used to say that, you know, if you're paying more taxes, you should get a better response rate from 911. That's evil. It's wrong. No one's life is more important than another. And Jesus changed me. He still has a long way to go in my heart. But he's changed those things. 
And then, being disillusioned by that side, I tried out the liberal side. All these people seem very compassionate and merciful. There's some beauty to that. There's some care of human dignity that some of it honors God. But there's no accountability. There's no justice, no real justice. It will only lead to more of the same. One people group oppressed to then rise up and oppress the other because the understanding of human beings is not addressed, that human beings aren't inherently good. Not in a shameful way, but we're all swayed, tempted to do evil. And so even if we equitize the world tomorrow, stuff's still going to go wrong. People are still going to steal. People are still going to be hateful. I'm giving sound bites of both sides, but I know some of those are, 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 are very big points that people find themselves in. And then my mind's tempted to go to the other side. Ah, conservatism, it's safer. Law, order. I value those things. But it's my safety placed in the hands of human beings so friends maybe I'm wrong but I think that regardless of what side that we're on a lot of us or all of us are being led by fear we want everything to be okay we want a happy ending and I hate to say this but there is no happy ending this side of heaven We can't make it all go away. We can't guarantee that we'll have a good life. We can't guarantee that we'll be safe. We can't guarantee any of that. And I hate this, but Jesus actually guarantees us if we're Christians, it isn't safe. If we're Christians, we're going to be hated. If we're Christians, we have to go against the culture. Again, I, I don't know why this is so random, but it reminds me of a black man named Daryl Davis. One of my favorite human beings. I uh, hope to meet him someday. Although I'm so awkward, I wouldn't know what to say. I haven't wept many times like I did when I heard that man's story. He's a black man who attended KKK rallies and was patient and listened and curious and built relationships with, I can't imagine... anyone that could be more of an enemy. And this man, through a lot of time, made a genuine friendship. I can't even say, I don't even understand. It seems fake. (laughs) A genuine friendship with a national leader chapter of a KKK organization for a state. And in a long amount of time, that leader resigned. I hope I'm getting this information correct because it seemed to be hard to find, but I believe that Daryl Davis is a Christian. And whether he is or he is not, that, friends, oh, I hate it because <laughs> it, it convicts me too. That's how we're supposed to live. We don't distance and cancel and hate and demonize the other and our enemy. We love them. We sacrifice for them. We pursue them. Again, we can't create a utopia. Please don't try. I know I try all the time, so I don't know why I'm telling you not to try. I should tell myself not to try. But if we as the church all acted like that man who Christ is inside of, 
the world would be a different place. It's not going to be perfect. But goodness gracious, wouldn't Jesus be glorified a bit more? I mean, can you imagine? Not that the headlines would ever say this, because news corporations make money off of fear and hatred. They love that stuff. But if there's some good news reporting, you turn on the TV and all of a sudden, oh my gosh, like, all these groups that used to hate each other are like loving each other and pursuing each other. And why is this happening? Oh, it's, it's Christians. Jesus should be glorified and would be glorified by us doing things like that. Well, if you have listened to the end of this episode, <laughs> I truly thank you. And, and I appreciate your courage to wrestle with challenging things. I think the world needs a lot more we're all wrong (laughs) instead of I'm right, you're wrong. And forgive my cynicism, but I can't imagine many people would appreciate me trying to find the middle ground and not have a populist message where we just blame somebody else, but we, we take ownership. So thank you for listening. Would love to hear uh, constructive comments, feedback, um, get some people on uh, for interviewing and you know, having some guests on. So if, if any of this interests you, send me a message. We'll see if uh, if we can work it out. Well, thank you so much for listening. And I hope you have a good rest of your day.